Podcastle Winter Solstice by Mike Resnick Hello, welcome to Podcastle. I'm Steve Ely. Rachel asked me to do this week's intro, I suspect, because it's a Mike Resnick story, and I've got plenty of experience at introducing Mike Resnick stories. But for me, there's a bit more to it. Just a little while ago on my own podcast, I mentioned the death of my grandmother. I won't belabor that point again here. What I did not mention on the podcast, in my eulogy, or anywhere else, was that for the past ten years or so, she'd been living with advanced Alzheimer's. By the time she died, she didn't know who anyone was, including herself. There were a couple of things that really struck me about her case. One was that she predicted she was going to get it. Her mother had had it too, although it wasn't called Alzheimer's then. My grandmother worked as the town clerk until she was 78. She refused to retire on her own. She had told her children for decades, When I'm too wacky to keep working, that was her word, wacky, you tell me and I'll stop. They did, and she did. Another odd effect was that it mellowed her out a lot. Where she used to be stubborn and irascible, she started to go along with everything instead, most likely to cover up that she didn't know what was going on. She seemed happy, and kept smiling to the end, but I found it unsettling. I preferred the stubborn, opinionated grandmother from my childhood. It may have been selfish of me, but I wanted to hold on to my memories of who she was, over and above who she had become. Alzheimer's is a wicked disease, partly because it's so often harder on the people around the patient than the patient herself. We lose people without fully losing them, without having the distance to grieve for them. And we're reminded how fragile we are ourselves. Our identities are our memories. The thought of losing them is legitimately, and I think rationally, terrifying. That my grandmother faced it with dignity and kept her cheer is one of the greatest examples of courage I can think of. I don't know if I could do the same. I wouldn't think it was possible if I hadn't seen it. This week's story is Winter Solstice by Mike Resnick. Mr. Resnick is first on the Locust list of all-time award winners in short fiction. He's won the Hugo Award five times and has received many other honors worldwide. He's currently the executive editor for Bayon's Universe, and his latest novel is the noir detective fantasy Stalking the Vampire from Pyre. This story first appeared in FNSF in 1991. The story is narrated by C.G. First, a 2005 graduate of Clarion West. His first published story will be coming soon in Weird Tales. And now, here's our story. Winter Solstice by Mike Resnick It is not easy to live backwards in time, even when you are Merlin the Magnificent. You would think it would be otherwise, that you would remember all the wonders of the future, but those memories grow dim and fade more quickly than you might suppose. I know that Galahad will win his duel tomorrow, but already the name of his son has left me. In fact, does he even have a son? Will he live long enough to pass on his noble blood? I think perhaps he may. I think that I have held his grandchild upon my knee. But I am not sure. 
It is all slipping away from me. Once I knew all the secrets of the universe. With no more than a thought I could bring time to a stop, reverse it in its course, twist it around my finger like a piece of string. By force of will alone I could pass among the stars and the galaxies. I could create life out of nothingness and turn living, breathing worlds into dust. Time passed, though not the way it passes for you, and I could no longer do these things. But I could isolate a DNA molecule and perform microsurgery on it, and I could produce the equations that allowed us to traverse the wormholes in space, and I could plot the orbit of an electron. Still more time slipped away, and although these gifts deserted me, I could create penicillin out of bread mold and comprehend both the general and special theories of relativity, and I could fly between the continents. But all that has gone, and I remember it as one remembers a dream. On those occasions, I can remember it at all. There was, there some day will be, there may come to you a disease of the aged, in which you lose portions of your mind, pieces of your past, thoughts you've thought and feelings you've felt, until all that's left is the primal id, screaming silently for warmth and nourishment. You see parts of yourself vanishing. You try to pull them back from oblivion. You fail. And all the while you realize what is happening to you until even that perception, that realization, is lost. I will weep for you in another millennia, but now your lost faces fade from my memory, your desperation recedes from the stage of my mind, and soon I will remember nothing of you. Everything is drifting away on the wind, eluding my frantic efforts to clutch it and bring it back to me. I am writing this down so that some day someone, possibly even you, will read it and will know that I was a good and moral man that I did my best under circumstances that a more compassionate God might not have forced upon me, that even as events and places slipped away from me, I did not shirk my duties. I served my people as best I could. They come to me, my people, and they say, It hurts, Merlin. They say, Cast a spell and make the pain go away. They say, My baby burns with fever and my milk has dried up. Do something, Merlin, they say. You are the greatest wizard in the kingdom, the greatest wizard who has ever lived. Surely you can do something. Even Arthur seeks me out. The war goes badly, he confides to me. The heathen fight against baptism. The knights have fallen to battling amongst themselves. He distrusts his queen. He reminds me that I am his personal wizard, that I am his most trusted friend, that it was I who taught him the secret of Excalibur. But that was many years ago, and of course I know nothing of it yet. I look at him thoughtfully, and though I know an Arthur who is bent with age and beaten down by the caprices of fate, an Arthur who has lost his Guinevere and his round table and all his dreams of Camelot, I can summon no compassion, no sympathy for this young man who is speaking to me. He is a stranger as he will be yesterday, as he will be last week. An old woman comes to see me in the early afternoon. Her arm is torn and miscolored. 
The stench of it makes my eyes water. The flies are thick around her. I cannot stand the pain any longer, Merlin, she weeps. It is like childbirth, but it does not go away. You are my only hope, Merlin. Cast your mystic spell, charge me what you will, but make the pain cease. I look at her arm where the badger has ripped it with his claws, and I want to turn my head away and wretch. I finally force myself to examine it. I have a sense that I need something, I am not sure what, something to attach to the front of my face, or if not my whole face, then at least across my nose and mouth, but I cannot recall what it is. The arm is swollen to almost twice its normal size, and although the wound is halfway between her elbow and her shoulder, she shrieks in agony when I gently manipulate her fingers. I want to give her something for her pain. Vague visions come to mind. Images of something long and slender and needle-like flash briefly before my eyes. There must be something I can do, I think, something I can give her, some miracle that I employed when I was younger and the world was older, but I can no longer remember what it is. I must do more than mask her pain, this much I still know, for infection has set in. The smell becomes stronger as I probe, and she screams. Gang, I think suddenly. The word for her condition begins with gang, but there is another syllable, and I cannot recall it. And even if I could recall it, I can no longer cure it. But she must have some surcease from her agony. She believes in my powers, and she is suffering, and my heart goes out to her. I mumble a chant, half whispering and half singing. She thinks I am calling up my ethereal servants from the netherworld, that I am bringing my magic to bear on the problem, and because she needs to believe in something, in anything, because she is suffering such agony, I do not tell her that what I am really saying is, God, just this one time, let me remember. Once, years, eons from now, I could have cured her. Give me back the knowledge, just for an hour, even for a minute. I did not ask to live backward in time, but it is my curse, and I have willingly borne it. But don't let this poor old woman die because of it. Let me cure her, and then you can ransack my mind and take back my memories. But God does not answer, and the woman keeps screaming, and finally I gently plaster mud on the wound to keep the flies away. There should be medicine, too. It comes in bottles. Bottles? Is that the right word? But I don't know how to make it. I don't even remember its color or shape or texture, and I give the woman a root, and mutter a spell over it, and tell her to sleep with it between her breasts, and to believe in its healing powers, and soon the pain will subside. She believes me. There is no earthly reason why she should, but I can see in her eyes that she does, and then she kisses my hands and presses the root to her bosom and wanders off, and somehow, for some reason, she does seem to be in less comfort, though the stench of the wound lingers long after she has gone. Then it is Lancelot's turn. Next week or next month he will slay the Black Knight, but first I must bless his sword. He talks of things we said to each other yesterday, things of which I have no recollection, and I think of things we will say to each other tomorrow. I stare into his dark brown eyes, for I alone know his secret, and I wonder if I should tell Arthur. 
I know they will fight a war over it, but I do not remember if I am the catalyst or if Guinevere herself confesses her infidelities, and I can no longer recall the outcome. I concentrate and try to see the future, but all I see is a city of towering steel and glass structures, and I cannot see Arthur or Lancelot anywhere, and then the image vanishes, and I still do not know whether I am to go to Arthur with my secret knowledge or keep my silence. I realize that it has all happened, that the round table and the knights and even Arthur will soon be dust, no matter what I say or do, but they are living forward in time, and this is of momentous import to them, even though I have watched it all pass and vanish before my eyes. Lancelot is speaking now, wondering about the strength of his faith, the purity of his virtue, filled with self-doubt. He is not afraid to die at the hands of the Black Knight, but he is afraid to face his God, if the reason for his death lies within himself. I continue to stare at him, this man who daily feels the bond of our friendship growing stronger, while I daily find that I know him less and less. And finally I lay a hand on his shoulder and assure him that he will be victorious, that I have had a vision of the Black Knight lying dead upon the field of battle as Lancelot raises his bloody sword in victorious triumph. Are you sure, Merlin? he asks doubtfully. I tell him that I am sure. I could tell him more. Tell him that I have seen the future, that I am losing it as quickly as I am learning the past, but he has problems of his own. And so, I realize, have I, for as I know less and less, I must pave the way for that youthful Merlin who will remember nothing at all. It is he that I must consider. I speak of him in the third person, for I know nothing of him, and he can barely remember me, nor will he know Arthur or Lancelot, or even the dark and twisted Modred. For as each of my days passes and time continues to unwind, he will be less able to cope less able to define even the problems he will face, let alone the solutions. I must give him a weapon with which to defend himself, a weapon that he can use and manip manipulate, no matter how little he remembers of me, and the weapon I choose is superstition, where once I worked miracles that were codified in books and natural law, now as their secrets vanish one by one, I must replace them with miracles that bedazzle the eye and terrify the heart, for only by securing the past can I guarantee the future, and I have already lived the future. I hope I was a good man. I would like to think I was, but I do not know. I examine my mind. I try to probe for weaknesses as I probe my patients' bodies, searching for sources of infection. But I am only the sum of my experience, and my experience has vanished, and I will have to settle for hoping that I had disgraced neither myself nor my God. After Lancelot leaves, I get to my feet and walk around the castle, my mind filled with strange images, fleeting pictures that seem to make sense until I concentrate on them, and then I find them incomprehensible. There are enormous armies clashing, armies larger than the entire populace of Arthur's kingdom, and I know that I have seen them. I have actually stood on the battlefield, Perhaps I even fought for one side or the other, but I do not recognize the colors they are wearing, and they use weaponry that seems like magic, true magic to me. I remember huge spacefaring ships, 
ships that sail the starways with neither canvas nor masts, and for a moment I think that this must surely be a dream. And then I seem to find myself standing at a small window, gazing out at the stars as we rush by them, and I see the rocky surfaces and swirling colors of distant worlds, and then I am back in the castle, and I feel a tremendous sense of poignancy and loss, as if I know that even the dream will never visit me again. I decide to concentrate, to force myself to remember, but no images come to me, and I begin to feel like a foolish old man. Why am I doing this, I wonder? It was a dream and not a memory, for everyone knows that the stars are nothing but lights that God uses to illuminate the night sky, and they are tacked onto a cloak of black velvet, and the moment I realize this, I can no longer even recall what the star-faring ships look like, and I know that soon I will not even remember that I once dreamed of them. I continue to wander the castle, touching familiar objects to reassure myself. This pillar was here yesterday. It will be here tomorrow. It is eternal. It will be here forever. I find comfort in the constancy of physical things, things that are not as ephemeral as my memories, things that cannot be ripped from the earth as easily as my past has been ripped from me. I stop before the church and read a small plaque. It is written in French, and it says that this church was something by Arthur, King of the Britons. The fourth word makes no sense to me, and this distresses me, because I have always been able to read the plaque before. Then I remember that tomorrow morning I will ask Sir Hector whether the word means built or constructed, and he will reply that it means dedicated, and I will know that for the rest of my life. But now I feel a sense of panic, because I am not only losing images and memories, I am actually losing words, and I wonder if the day will come when people will speak to me, and I will understand nothing of what they were saying, and will merely stare at them in mute confusion, my eyes as large and gentle and devoid of intelligence as a cow's. I know that all I have lost so far is a single French word, but it distresses me, because in the future I will speak French fluently, as well as German and Italian and... And I know there is another language. I will be able to speak it and read it and write it, but suddenly it eludes me, and I realize that another ability, another memory, yet another integral piece of myself has fallen into the abyss, never to be retrieved. I turn away from the plaque, and I go back to my quarters, looking neither right nor left for fear of seeing some building, some artifact that has no place in my memory, something that reeks of permanence and yet is unknown to me, and I find a scullery maid waiting for me. She is young and very pretty, and I will know her name tomorrow, will roll it around on my mouth and marvel at the melody it makes even coming forth from my old lips, but I look at her and the fact dawns upon me that I cannot recall who she is. I hope I have not slept with her. I have a feeling that as I grow younger I will commit more than my share of indiscretions, only because I do not wish to hurt her feelings, and there is no logical way to explain to her that I cannot remember her, that the ecstasies of last night and last week and last year are still unknown to me. But she is not here as a lover. She has come as a supplicant. 
She had a child, a son, who is standing in the shadows behind my door, and now she summons him forth, and he hobbles over to me. I look down at him, and I see that he is a clubfoot. His ankle is misshapen, his foot is turned inward, and he is very obviously ashamed of his deformity. "'Can you help him?' asks the scullery maid. "'Can you make him run like other little boys? "'I will give you everything I have, anything you ask, if you can make him like the other children.' I look at the boy, and then at his mother, and then once more at the boy. He is so very young, he has seen nothing of the world, and I wish that I could do something to help him, but I no longer know what to do. There was a time when I knew. There will come a time when no child must limp through his life in pain and humiliation. I know this is so. I know that some day I will be able to cure far worse maladies than a clubfoot. At least I think I know this, but all that I know for sure is that the boy was born a cripple and will live a cripple and will die a cripple, and there is nothing I can do about it. You are crying, Merlin, says the scullery maid. Th does the sight of my child so offend you? No, I say. It does not offend me. Then why do you cry, she asks. I cry because there is nothing else I can do but cry, I reply. I cry for the life your son will never know, and for the life that I have forgotten. I do not understand, she says. Nor do I, I answer. Does this mean you will not help my son, she asks? I do not know what it means. I see her face growing older and thinner and more bitter, so I know that she will visit me again and again. But I cannot see her son at all, and I do not know if I will help him or if I do, exactly how I will help him. I close my eyes and concentrate, and try to remember the future. Is there a cure? Do men still limp on the moon? Do old men still weep because they cannot help? I try, but it has slipped away again. I must think about this problem, I say at last. Come back tomorrow, and perhaps I will have a solution. You mean a spell, she asks eagerly. Yes, a spell, I say. She calls the child to her, and together they leave, and I realize that she will come back alone tonight, for I am sure, at least I am almost sure, that I will know her name tomorrow. It will be Marion, or Miranda, something beginning with an M, or possibly Elizabeth. But I think I am really almost certain that she will return for her face is more real to me now than it was when she stood before me. Or is it that she has not stood before me yet? It gets more and more difficult to separate the events from the memories, and the memories from the dreams. I concentrate on her face, this Marion or Miranda, and it is another face I see, a lovely face with pale blue eyes and high cheekbones, a strong jaw and long auburn hair. It meant something to me once, this face. I feel a sense of warmth and caring and loss when I see it, but I don't know why. I have an instinctive feeling this, this face meant, will mean, more to me than any other, that it will bring me both happiness and sorrow beyond any that I have ever known. There is a name that goes with it. It is not Marion or Miriam, or is it? I grasp futilely for it, and the more frantically I grasp, the more rapidly it recedes. 
Did I love her, the owner of this face? Will we bring joy and comfort to one another? Will we produce sturdy, healthy children to comfort us in our old age? I don't know, because my old age has been spent, and hers is yet to come, and I have forgotten what she does not yet know. I concentrate on the image of her face. How will we meet? What draws me to you? There must be a hundred little mannerisms, foibles as often as virtues, that will endear you to me. Why can I not remember a single one of them? How will you live, and how will you die? Will I be there to comfort you? And once you're lost, who will be there to comfort me? Is it better that I can no longer recall the answers to these questions? I feel if I concentrate hard enough, things will come back to me. No face was ever so important to me, not even Arthur's, and so I block out all other thoughts and close my eyes and conjure up her face. Yes, conjure. I am Merlin, am I not? But now I am not so certain that it is her face. Was the jaw thus or so? Were her eyes really that pale? Her hair that auburn? I am filled with doubt, and I imagine her eyes were a deeper blue, hair that was lighter and shorter, a more delicate nose, and I realize that I have never seen this face before, that I was deluded by my self-doubts, that my memory has not failed me completely, and I attempt to paint her portrait on the canvas of my mind once again, but I cannot. The proportions are wrong, the colors are askew, and even so I cling to this approximation, for once I have lost it, I have lost her forever. I concentrate on the eyes, making them larger, bluer, paler, and finally I am pleased with them, but now they are in a face that I no longer know, her true face, as elusive now as her name and her life. I sit back on my chair and I sigh. I did not know how long I have been sitting there, trying to remember a face, a woman's face, I think, but I am no longer sure. When I hear a cough, and I look up, and Arthur is standing before me. We must talk, my old friend and mentor, he says, drawing up his own chair and seating himself on it. Must we, I ask. He nods his head firmly. The round table is coming apart, he says, his voice concerned. The kingdom is in disarray. You must assert yourself and put it in order, I say, wondering what he is talking about. It's not that easy, he says. It never is, I say. I need Lancelot, says Arthur. He is the best of them, and after you, he is my closest friend and adviser. He thinks I don't know what he is doing, but I know, though I pretend not to. What do you propose to do about it, I ask? He turns to me, his eyes tortured. I don't know, he says. I love them both. I don't want to bring harm to them. But the important thing is not me or Lancelot or the Queen, but the round table. I built it to last for all eternity, and it must survive. Nothing lasts for eternity, I say. Ideals do, he replies with conviction. There is good and there is evil, and those who believe in the good must stand up and be counted. Isn't that what you have done, I ask? Yes, says Arthur, but until now the choice was an easy one. Now I do not know which road to take. If I stop feigning ignorance, then I must kill Lancelot and burn the queen at the stake, and this will surely destroy the round table. 
He pauses and looks at me. Tell me the truth, Merlin, he says. Would Lancelot be a better king than I? I must know, for if it will save the round table, I will step aside and he can have it all, the throne, the queen, Camelot. But I must be sure. Who can say what the future holds, I reply. You can, he says. At least when I was a young man, you told me that you could. Did I? I ask curiously. I must have been mistaken. The future is unknowable as the past. But everyone knows the past, he says. It is the future that men fear. Men fear the unknown, wherever it may lie, I say. I think that only cowards fear the unknown, says Arthur. When I was a young man and I was building the table, I could not wait for the future to arrive. I used to awaken an hour before sunrise and lay there in my bed, trembling with excitement, eager to see what new triumphs each day would bring me. Suddenly he sighs and seems to age before my eyes. But I am not that man any more, he continues, after a thoughtful silence. And now I fear the future. I fear for Guinevere, and for Lancelot, and for the round table. That is not what you fear, I say. What do you mean, he asks. You fear what all men fear, I say. I do not understand you, says Arthur. Yes, you do, I reply. And now you fear even to admit to your fears. He takes a deep breath and stares unblinking into my eyes, for he is truly a brave and honorable man. All right, he says at last, I fear for me. That is only natural, I say. He shakes his head. It does not feel natural, Merlin, he says. Oh, I say. I have failed, Merlin, he continues. Everything is dissolving around me, the round table and the reasons for it. I have lived the best life I could, but evidently I did not live it well enough. Now all that is left to me is my death. He pauses uncomfortably, and I fear that I will die no better than I have lived. My heart goes out to him, this young man that I do not know but will know some day, and I lay a reassuring hand on his shoulder. I am a king, he continues, and if a king does nothing else, he must die well and nobly. You will die well, my lord, I say. Will I? he asks uncertainly. Will I die in battle, fighting for what I believe when all others have left my side? Or will I die a feeble old man, drooling, incontinent, no longer even aware of my surroundings? I decide to try once more to look into the future, to put his mind at ease. I close my eyes, and I peer ahead, and I see not a mindless, babbling old man, but a mindless, mewling baby, and that baby is myself. Arthur tries to look ahead to the future he fears, and I, traveling in the opposite direction, look ahead to the future I fear, and I realize there is no difference, that this is the humiliating state in which man both enters and leaves the world, and that he had better learn to cherish the time in between, for it is all that he has. I tell Arthur again that he shall die the death he wants, and finally he leaves, and I am alone with my thoughts. I hope I can face my fate with the same courage that Arthur will face his, but I doubt that I can, for Arthur can only guess at his, while I can see mine with frightening clarity. 
I try to remember how Arthur's life actually does end, but it is gone, dissipated in the mists of time, and I realize that there are very few pieces of myself left to lose before I become that crying, mindless baby, a creature of nothing but appetites and fears. It is not the end that disturbs me, but the knowledge of the end, the terrible awareness of it happening to me while I watch helpless, almost an observer at the disintegration of whatever it is that has made me Merlin. A young man walks by my door and waves to me. I cannot recall ever seeing him before. Sir Pellinore stops to thank me. For what? I don't remember. It is almost dark. I am expecting someone. I think it is a woman. I can almost picture her face. I think I should tidy up the bedroom before she arrives, and I suddenly realize that I don't remember where the bedroom is. I must write this down while I still possess the gift of literacy. Everything is slipping away, drifting on the wind. Please, somebody, help me. I'm frightened. Episode number 32, Andy Duncan's Senator Bilbo, the story of electoral politics in Tolkien's Shire, provoked an interesting variety of responses. On the blog, David said, A very appropriate story for the occasion. I found the senator's claim that it was the trolls whose brains had ossified especially funny given his behavior. Keep it coming. And Indigo observed, I really felt a lot of sympathy for this guy. I mean, he comes from a time of war, where racism is a defense mechanism. He learned to act a certain way because his guardians wanted him to be safe. The man barely understands what was going on around him. I don't know how he was supposed to keep up with changing times. I've seen this behavior condoned before, but it raises the question, what do you do with these people, especially if they hold any kind of power and even have done wonderful things? On the board, Talia said, I enjoyed the story. Not much bothered by politics and fiction, and I actually found the timing appropriate. To me, it was a believable account of what could happen if the hobbits in the idyllic shire were to fall into the habit of modern human politics. But a number of commenters felt the story disrespected Tolkien. Ryos said, I hate stories with political agendas, and I especially hate stories whose only purpose is their political agenda. Not only does it make for bad fiction, but it makes for poor political discourse as well. This story had no plot to speak of, a weak main character, and was a poor use of Tolkien's creation. And Hyperion said, If Tolkien were alive today and read this story, I think he would be mortified. Corydon disagreed, saying, I found this story to be a loving, if irreverent, tribute to Tolkien. Come on over to forum.escapeartist.info and cast your vote. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnitune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Tennessee Williams said, Life is all memory, except for the one present moment that goes by you so quick you hardly catch it going. <laughs>